From NPR News in Washington, D.C., this is Weekend Edition. I'm Scott Simon. This hour, Ron Elving on the Weekend Politics. Also, Estonia votes and worries about Russia next door. Americans are shopping, but retailers aren't sold on the outlook for this year. A new book and look at the history of the British Empire from a journalist who says, Hey, Americans, I'm talking about you, too. And Macklemore, the rap star, is out with his first album in five years and coming back from recent substance abuse he couldn't hide. My wife, she always knows. She was just like, yo, what's going on? You're not being honest with me. A hugely popular artist opens his heart later this hour. First, we have our newscast. It is Saturday, March 4, 2023. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Giles Snyder. President Biden is praising Germany for its continued support of Ukraine. Together, we made good on our promise. You've stepped up to provide critical military support. And, you know, I would argue that beyond your military support, the moral support you gave to the Ukrainians has been profound. Biden speaking there at the White House with the visiting German Chancellor Olaf Scholz at his side. The two pledged to continue imposing costs on Russia over the invasion of Ukraine, where heavy fighting is reported today in and around the eastern city of Bakhmut. Russian forces are said to be getting closer to encircling the city. The latest assessment from British military intelligence says Ukrainian forces are facing increasingly strong pressure. At the annual Conservative Political Action Conference in Maryland, Republican presidential candidate Nikki Haley acknowledged that Republicans lost the popular vote in the last seven and the se- in seven of the last eight presidential elections. Our cause is right, but we have failed to win the confidence of a majority of Americans. That ends now. CPAC will draw to a close this evening with remarks from former President Donald Trump, who still does not concede his 2020 election loss. The head of the International Atomic Energy Agency is in Tehran after new alarms were raised over Iran's nuclear program. NPR's Peter Kenyon reports Rafael Grossi says expectations for progress and ongoing talks are high. Grossi told reporters in Tehran that discussions with Mohammed Islami, the head of Iran's atomic energy organization, involved an investigation investigation into traces of uranium found at three undeclared sites in Iran. The agency reportedly wants an explanation for uranium particles that had been enriched to nearly 84% purity, very close to weapons grade. Grossi described his meetings as being marked by, quote, work, honesty, and cooperation. Islami told Iranian state TV that Tehran moved away from its commitments under the 2015 nuclear agreement after, quote, other parties failed to fulfill their commitments. Peter Kenyon, NPR News, Istanbul. The first woman to ever head the U.S. Census has died. Barbara Bryant was 96 years old. NPR's Hansi Lo Wong reports. Barbara Bryant lived a life that counted, says her daughter Linda Bryant-Valentine. Her appointment as Census Bureau Director in 1989 broke two centuries of men leading the national headcount that used to determine political representation. Valentine says the job was a hot seat for her mother, who received lots of messages one year during Christmas time. The fax machine paper was all over the room because she had been sued by mayors of practically every big city over the undercount, which is a perennial issue in the census. The current Census Bureau director, Robert Santos, called Bryant a champion of quality survey methods and a trailblazer. Hansi Luong, NPR News. And you're listening to NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. 
Good morning. I'm John Carpilio in Boston. Well, we're waking up to a mix of rain and snow. It's mostly rain and sleet from Boston to the Cape. Outside of 128 and 495, it's snowing. WBUR meteorologist Danielle Noyes says conditions will change. The rain snow line will snap towards the coast through early afternoon, so a flip to snow will occur for Boston and the South Shore during that time. Additional accumulation will be minimal, though, according to an inch in spots, two to three inches along the Mass New Hampshire border. Noyes says the snow will end around 5 o'clock this afternoon, but snow showers will linger on the Cape. Winds are expected to gust 40 to 50 miles per hour in the eastern part of the state before diminishing tonight. Here's what it's like getting around this morning. On the roads, the speed limit is reduced to 40 miles an hour on the Mass Pike between Westfield and the New York border. The state says it has 1,800 pieces of equipment deployed. The MBTA is reporting 20-minute storm-related delays on the Silver Line. According to the airline tracking site FlightAware, 19% of flights at Logan are canceled, 5% are delayed. High winds are forcing the Steamship Authority to cancel early ferry service between Cape Cod and the islands, and the Massachusetts Emergency Management Agency is reporting 7,000 power outages scattered around the Cape. In other news, a major COVID outbreak is being reported at a Cape Cod nursing home. The Cape Cod Times reports four residents at the Windsor Skilled Nursing and Rehabilitation Center in South Yarmouth died from this week's outbreak. The State Department of Public Health sent a rapid response team to the facility and ordered the center to stop taking any more admissions. And U.S. Attorney for Massachusetts Rachel Rollins will be in Alabama today, leading more than 30 attorneys general to commemorate Bloody Sunday and the passage of the Voting Rights Act of 1965. The group will visit historic civil rights sites during their four-day tour. And uh, in the weather forecast, again, a wintry mix this morning in the Boston area. Snow wrapping back around later this afternoon. 36 degrees now. WBUR supporters include Imaginable Futures, supporting the Institute for Women's Policy Research, working to close inequality gaps for women and improve the economic well-being of families. IWPR.org. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon, and thank you for joining us. Attorney General Merrick Garland made a surprise visit to Ukraine. We will stand shoulder to shoulder with you in your effort and in the world's effort to bring accountability to those responsible for the atrocities in Ukraine. And I'm here to let you know that we stand with you. Mr. Garland signed an agreement to provide Ukraine with intelligence that could lead to prosecuting Russia for war crimes. NPR senior editor and correspondent Ron Elving joins us. Ron, thanks for being with us. Good to be with you, Scott. It's unusual for an attorney general to go on an international trip with, uh, with business to do. What's the significance of this visit? Vice President Kamala Harris indicated last week that the U.S. and its allies would pursue war crimes charges against Russia. Uh, this trip by the top law enforcement official in the U.S. was meant to reinforce that. But there is also a domestic political element here. Biden is reframe, reframing the aid to Ukraine as a 
voting issue for 2024, casting himself and his party as the defenders of liberty and law around the world, casting Russia as an international pariah. Uh, He wants to get out in front of this issue because polls show some American voters are growing weary of the war, even though the U.S. has not sent troops. Uh, Republicans in particular are asking when it's time to dial back before we find ourselves in a war with Russia and possibly with China as well. Republicans are now in charge of the House and congressional committees continued their probes uh, of President Biden and his family, both living and deceased. House Oversight Chairman James Comer criticized a U.S. attorney for failing to prosecute Bo Biden, the president's older son, who, of course, died in 2015 of brain cancer. What possible reason is there for this? It is fair game to ask questions about a president's private financial affairs and those of his family where there is evidence. This week, we saw the new House Oversight Committee chairman, James Comer, going after a former U.S. attorney for Delaware for allegedly mishandling sensitive matters about the Bidens, including the notorious Hunter Biden laptop. Republicans have long insisted that device is loaded with incriminating evidence of corruption. But Comer, as you say, also went after Bo Biden, the president's other son, who died in injuries, died of injuries he received serving his country in Afghanistan and Iraq. So the White House immediately fired back for impugning a dead man and one so dear to the sitting president, especially given that there is no evidence linking Bo Biden to illegal campaign contributions or even any suggestion of it at issue here. So it's, it's fair to say the GOP investigations of Biden and his family have not been getting off to a good start in Congress. Ron, you and I are two Chicago guys who know everything runs through Chicago at one point. Um, <laughs> Uh, Mayor Lightfoot, Lori Lightfoot, defeated in the first round of elections this week. This this is a contest that has national ramifications, doesn't it? Yes, it's connected to many national issues. You have to go back to Jane Byrne 40 years ago to find another Chicago mayor losing like this, but everyone in Chicago wants someone to have some fresh ideas when the issue is crime. Uh, the leading candidates who finished one and two uh, were both outspoken on this issue, especially Paul Vallis, a former school superintendent who got a third of all the votes in this round. But Brandon Johnson, former school teacher and a county official, might be in a better position to put together a winning coalition in the runoff. The next round of voting is April 4th. Crime is a flashing red light for Democrats in big cities everywhere this year. And in fact, this week, President Biden is expected to take sides in a dispute over the criminal code here in the District of Columbia. The city council here wanted to do, wanted to essentially rewrite the code. And uh, Congress essentially said, no, it's getting too easy on certain kinds of criminals and congress gets a say in these local affairs when it comes to dc and that too is an issue for city residents nbr's ron elving thanks so much for joining us thank you scott voters in estonia go to the polls this weekend of course estonia shares a border with russia and has been in the news recently thanks to prime minister kaya Kallas. she made history as the first female prime minister of estonia and has been a vocal supporter of Ukraine and a critic of Vladimir Putin. NPR's Rob Schmitz joins us now. Rob, thanks so much for being with us. Thanks for having me. Well, what are the prime minister's chances uh, to hold on to power? Pretty good, Scott. She's uh, she's a leader of the country's reform party, and Kaya Kallas will likely emerge as the prime minister for another term. This is very much a wartime election for Estonia, and the country's political parties all seem to be trying to outdo each other in how much they're promising to spend on defense. Estonia's population is just over a million people, and many citizens are concerned 
about their own national security, of course, given their proximity with Russia and their history as a former Soviet republic. Uh, the government of Prime Minister Kallas is now spending 3% of the country's GDP on defense. That's an historical high for Estonia. And her government has given Ukraine the equivalent of 1% of its GDP in military assistance. That's more than any other country in terms of its population to GDP ratio. Rob, how real is the uh, is the threat that Russia would invade Estonia? I think that many Estonians are scared that it actually could happen. Russian President Vladimir Putin has made threats in the past year that back up a lot of these fears. In June, on the 350th anniversary of the birthday of Peter the Great, Russia's first emperor, Putin made a speech in which he recalled Peter's conquering of the Baltic region, which includes parts of Estonia, and he hinted that returning these lands to Russia now fell to him and his government. And of course, that caused quite a stir among Estonians, many who remember how difficult life was under Soviet rule. And it's probably worth pointing out here that St. Petersburg is less than a three-hour drive to Estonia. And of course, there are many uh, Russian-speaking citizens who are in mm -hmm. Estonia. Uh, do you have any idea how they uh, might be expected to vote? Yeah, around a quarter of Estonia's population identify as ethnic Russians, and this population has been under a lot of stress in the past year as Estonia's government has removed Soviet-era monuments across the country and has ratcheted up its rhetoric against Russia. Many Russian speakers in Estonia vote for what's called the Center Party, a conservative, traditional party that has in the past actually had ties with Russia. But since the war began, the party insists that it's cut these ties. This is a wartime election. Having overt ties to Russia is not going to win them many points. So they've changed their rhetoric on Russia, and many Russians in Estonia have done the same. And help us understand why Americans uh, ought to pay particular attention to this election. Well, first, Estonia is a key member of the eastern flank of NATO. It's essentially the West's front line against an increasingly aggressive Russia. I spoke to the German Marshall Fund's Christine Berzina about why Estonia is important to U.S. interests. Here's what she said. The location of these countries, the pro-American, pro-European, economically successful, resourceful, democratic, human rights-loving nature of the eastern flank countries is something that Russia sees as a threat to it. But these countries are the most loyal and most reliable allies for the United States. And Scott, Brezina says, unlike other European countries like Hungary or, or even Germany, where I am, uh, Estonia is completely in line with the U.S. on its security goals in the region and in how it sees the threat from Russia. So even though Estonia is this small Baltic country, it's an important ally of the U.S. And here's Rob Schmitz joining us from Berlin. Thanks so much, Rob. Thank you. Children of America who may feel trapped by NPR in the backseat of the family car or at the breakfast table, listen up! You may be chomping on a gold mine. Delta Dental's annual poll of parents reveals this week that the average amount the tooth fairy slips under the pillow in exchange for a child's lost tooth has climbed to $6.23, a 16% jump. Justin Walters, the esteemed economist at the University of Michigan, told us the children of America are getting what their parents are not, pay rises that more than compensate for inflation. Inflation, as you may have heard on this very network, is now at 6.4%. Professor Walters cited several factors in the skyrocketing tooth index. For one, 
The supply of teeth in a child's mouth is limited, finite, and non-renewable. Each child, despite the rising incentives offered by the tooth fairy, still only loses 20 teeth, he reminds us, and even that takes 10 to 12 years. Then he notes there's what economists call excessive concentration. The tooth fairy is a monopoly. There is no tooth elf or toothful stiltskin a child can turn to for a higher price. For far too long, says the professor, the tooth fairy has managed to force kids to accept low prices and made parents willing accomplices. The tooth fairy used to slip a dollar or one euro coin under the pillows of our daughters when they lost a tooth. As I look back on it now, how miserly. I wonder if our 16-year-old can still file a federal suit to charge. She was underpaid by that robber baron of children's teeth who cloaks themselves under the whimsical name Tooth Fairy. To the ramparts! Finally, notes Professor Wolfers, losing a tooth is no longer a carefree rite of childhood passage. Young people today must worry about Social Security and other government programs running out of money before they need it. That tooth is a key part of their financial futures, he explains. It's little wonder that little tykes are asking big bucks for them. Professor Wolfers predicts that the tooth market will normalize if Congress can act to reduce the national deficit and develop a bipartisan plan to save Social Security from bankruptcy. Parents all over America might rally for Congress to reach that deal now, save Social Security, and break the tooth feropoly. Do you hear the people sing, singing the song of angry men? It is the music of a people who will not be slaves again. When the beating of your heart echoes the beating of the drums, there is a life about to start when tomorrow comes. Will you join in our crusade who will be strong and stand with me? Beyond the barricade, is there a world you long to see? Ah, and you're listening to NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good morning. I'm John Carpilio in Boston. Well, it's a messy start to the weekend with a mixed bag of conditions, depending on where you are. WBUR meteorologist Danielle Noyes has the wintry forecast. A bit of everything out there, mostly rain and sleet Boston to the Cape, north and west of the city, especially outside of 128 and 495. Still some snow coming down. The rain snow line will snap towards the coast through early afternoon, so a flip to snow will occur for Boston and the south shore during that time. Additional accumulation will be minimal, though, coating to an inch in spots, two to three inches along the Mass New Hampshire border. The snow ends 5 to 7 p.m. A few snow showers linger a little bit longer on the Cape. The wind will cause some issues today, gusts 40 to 50 miles per hour in eastern Massachusetts, some gusts to 60 from Cape Ann to Cape Cod through early evening. The wind eases tonight. We drop into the 20s. It'll be a blend of sun and clouds and highs in the 40s tomorrow. And Danielle will join us again in 15 minutes. On the highways, the state says it has 1,800 pieces of equipment deployed. The only delay being reported right now is on the Silver Line. The T says the buses are running 20 minutes late. According to the airline tracking site FlightAware, 19% of flights at Logan are canceled. And the Massachusetts Emergency Management Agency is reporting 7,000 power outages scattered across the state. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. On All Things Considered, I try to drive hard questions. Well, your old car can drive our whole program. Consider donating it. And thanks. Just go to WBUR.org. 
In sports, the Celtics lost to the Brooklyn Nets last night. They blew a big lead and dropped the decision 115-105. to Boston hosts the New York Knicks tomorrow night. This afternoon at the TD Garden, the Bruins host the New York Rangers as they continue their somewhat magical season. Again, a wintry mix this morning and a little more snow this afternoon. 36 degrees now in Boston. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Plymouth Rock Assurance, who believes auto and home insurance should be straightforward and works to assure their customers at every step. PlymouthRock.com slash WBUR. And UMass Chan Medical School, proud to be named one of Boston Globe's top places to work. Learn more at umassmed.edu slash globe. I'm Giles Snyder with these headlines. A large storm system has moved into the northeast. It's threatening heavy snow and coastal flooding after killing at least nine people in the south where homes and businesses were damaged. Most of the power outages are in Michigan, Kentucky, and Tennessee. The Conservative Political Action Conference is drawing to a close today. Former President Donald Trump is scheduled to deliver the event's closing remarks. CPAC is being held at the National Harbor in Maryland. And Alaska's Iditarod sled dog race gets underway this weekend. It begins with the ceremonial start today in Anchorage. The field is the smallest in the race's 50-year history. 33 mushers and their dog teams are participating. I'm Giles Snyder, NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from American Cruise Lines, cruising the Mississippi River, where passengers can experience Southern culture and visit Civil War battlefields. Learn more at AmericanCruiseLines.com slash NPR. And from the estate of Joan B. Kroc, whose bequest serves as an enduring investment in the future of public radio and seeks to help NPR be the model for high-quality journalism in the 21st century. And from the sustaining members of this NPR station. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon. Since last month's earthquake, some Arab states have warmed up to the Syrian government despite their prior opposition to the regime and its poor human rights record. NPR's Ayah Batrawi is one of the few outside reporters to visit Syria since the quakes, and she saw how the United Arab Emirates is realigning its relations with Syria's government and people. Deep in the Syrian countryside, outside the city of Jeble, I follow a group of aid workers from the United Arab Emirates on dirt roads past lemon and mandarin trees and buildings damaged by the earthquakes. We go up the stairs of an unfinished cinder block building. We reach an apartment with a Syrian man, sick with cancer and displaced from his home by the earthquakes. He tells me about the surgeries he's had and the one he still needs. His daughter tenderly holds his hand and tries to comfort him. (laughs) Aid workers from the Emirati Red Crescent are also by his bedside. They've brought him cash to pay for surgery he needs but couldn't afford. And they have a message for him. This is from the UAE's president, Sheikh Mohammed bin Zayed, who's asked them to help the Syrian people. I was able to have this rare access into Syrian government territory through the UAE, 
by coming on an Emirati cargo plane from Abu Dhabi. It's one of more than 138 flights the UAE has sent to Syria since February's earthquakes. The UAE's presence at Latakia airport is possible because it has been restoring ties with Syrian President Bashar al-Assad's regime steadily over the years. Early in the civil war, Gulf Arab states had supported the rebels fighting against Assad and his Iranian allies. But countries like the UAE, Oman, Egypt and Jordan are now using this moment after the earthquakes to rebuild ties with a regime that's still around, like it or not. And I think they all came to the realization that we fought this regime, that we tried to topple this regime. Come 2020, we came to a new realization that this government is here to stay. Abdelkhaliq Abdullah is an Emirati analyst and a senior fellow at Harvard's Belfer Center. He says the earthquake is an opportunity to turn aid diplomacy into political diplomacy. Even Saudi Arabia, which helped arm groups fighting Assad's regime, has sent direct aid into Syria. But Hiba Zayadeen of Human Rights Watch says Arab states should slow down their outreach to Damascus and press for accountability for the brutal suppression of protests, the bombing of civilian areas, and the forced disappearance of thousands of people. I think there needs to be some leverage, there needs to be some commitments made, and the commitments have to be very clear in terms of a safe return for refugees, that that return is, is monitored, and whether they even have homes to return to. So there, there's a lot of commitments that need to be made that are precise before um, countries should be rushing to normalize. The U.S. has called for free elections and other major reforms in Syria before it rebuilds ties with Damascus. But Gulf Arab states want to reassert their influence in Syria, in part to counter Iranian militias there. The UAE has already delivered over 4,000 tons of aid into Syria, some of it arriving here in Latakia province, where Russia's warplanes helped the Syrian regime fight to stay in power. And at this airport in Latakia, I am staring out onto a Russian military base, and there are Russian soldiers walking back and forth. They are proving all the aid flights that are coming in from the UAE, like the one that I was on to get here. Syria is an impoverished, fragmented country. Many families in Jeble have sons who've died fighting for the regime. What they tell me is no secret. The government has offered little to no help since the earthquakes. People in Jeble earn around $13 a month, but many others can't find work at all. <laughs> Lala Faris's four sons have all been drafted to fight in Syria's civil war. One of them is now an officer in the city of Aleppo. But she's sad and tired of conflict. She wants Syria to be united and at peace again. Her refrigerator is empty. There's no electricity most of the day to keep it running anyway. Her pregnant daughter-in-law fainted during the earthquakes and is bedridden. Emirati aid workers are giving her money for surgery. It's nearly nightfall. There are still more homes to visit. The Emirati aid workers are assisting families impacted not just by the earthquakes, but by years of deprivation from civil war and Syria's isolation. And that's what the UAE is working to reverse for its own national interests as well. Aya Batrawi, 
NPR News, Jeble, Syria. People released from jails and prisons often have immediate health problems. One study found that in the two weeks after they leave prison, people were 12 times more likely to die than the average American. Now, the federal government is letting states offer Medicaid coverage to people while they're still behind bars. Joined now by Ryan Levy, he's a reporter with the Health Policy Podcast Tradeoffs. Ryan, thanks for being with us. Thanks for having me, Scott. And why are people who were just coming out of prison at such high risk for health problems? Well, a lot of folks who are incarcerated are already in pretty poor health. You know, a lot of them have chronic health conditions like high blood pressure and diabetes, uh, as well as mental illness and substance use issues. Now, jails and prisons do have to provide medical care, but it can often be pretty substandard. And when someone's released, they then have to figure out how to find new doctors and refill prescriptions all on their own. And on top of that, they're also having to, you know, find a place to live, find a job. And in my reporting, I heard a lot about just how hard it can be for people to get health care once they're released and what that can mean for their health. Tell us about some of the people you met, please. Yeah, so one striking example was a gentleman named Lee Reed. He's 62 years old and spent over 20 years in prison in California before being released last July. He's got diabetes, high blood pressure, and for years he's dealt with agonizing back pain. Imagine somebody standing on your foot and you can't stop that pain. And they're just going to stand there. They're not going to get up off of it. It's going to be there when you wake up. It's going to be there when you go to sleep. Half the time, I never even got out of the bed while I was in prison because I couldn't stand up. It was so painful. Lee's doctors in prison told him that he needed surgery, but because he was so close to his release date, he'd have to get it done on the outside. And Scott, Lee ended up spending his first two nights after leaving prison sleeping in a parking garage in downtown San Francisco. Uh, He eventually made it to a shelter that connected him with a doctor, but it took six months for him to get that surgery. And that whole time, he's in intense pain, going to the ER more than once a month, and really struggling mentally, too. Ryan, how's the federal government trying to change things to help people like Lee? Well, they're starting to let states offer Medicaid coverage in the weeks and months before a person leaves jail, prison, or juvenile facilities. So that way, they already have health insurance in place when they leave and then can hopefully avoid these big disruptions in care. California became the first state to get federal approval to do this at the end of January, but 14 other states have also applied, uh, including Oregon, Massachusetts, as well as places like Utah and West Virginia. It doesn't sound like a huge change, but what kind of difference could it make? Well, it may not seem like a big change, Scott. Experts I spoke with say it really is. You know, this is the first time that Medicaid is being offered to folks who are behind bars. Now, there's still obviously a lot we don't know, and trying to integrate the healthcare and correction systems will be a huge challenge for sure. And it's also important to remember that different people will qualify in different states, right? Some states want everyone in prison and jail to have access. In California, folks will need an existing chronic health condition to qualify. And a few states are only looking to offer this to people with substance use disorder. So there's a lot to still figure out, but people are hopeful that this could make a really challenging transition a little bit easier. 
Reporter Ryan Levy with the podcast Tradeoffs. A recent episode goes into detail on this issue. Ryan, thanks so much for being with us. Thanks for having me, Scott. Boy, Americans love to shop and are shopping a lot, but big chain stores said to be anxious about the year ahead, according to a flurry of recent financial reports from large retailers. NPR retail correspondent Alina Seljuk has read them all. What fun! She joins us now. Thanks for being with us, Alina. <laughs> it really was. It really was. So why are food and retail giants, uh, I'll put it this way, fretful? About this coming year? Sure. They, and here I just want to clarify, we're talking about stores you really know, like Walmart, Target, Wendy's. And they kept talking about everyone's favorite word, uncertainty, or to quote Walmart CEO, the unknown unknowns. We kind of know what they are. Inflation, the Federal Reserve's plan for interest rates, slowdown in the housing market, growing household debt. Who knows what happens with the supply chain, the war in Ukraine. And that's how you get these super anxious forecasts, even when customers are spending a lot. Like Target is saying sales may grow or maybe they won't. Or McDonald's CEO is saying shoppers are doing a ton better than we could have predicted even six months ago. But then maybe we'll face a mild to moderate recession this year. Could they be hedging their bets, uh, which I guess first just might be sagacious, but also just so their investors don't get riled? Just sort of set the bar low. I actually posed this question to Arun Sundaram, who tracks retail and food companies at equity research firm CFRA. He said that's probably part of it. Certainly, they retailers like to set the bar low and then come in and exceed those expectations. But I think the other part is really the uncertainty on the macro environment. You know, inflation has been stubbornly high. Uh, we don't know what the Federal Reserve is going to do. There's a lot of debate on that right now. You heard it again, uncertainty. Plus, shoppers are still changing how they spend. Home Depot had a rough end of the year and blamed part of it on the fact that people are dedicating more of their budgets to activities and trips instead of things. Store brands are having a big moment. People shopping for these cheaper private brands instead of the big national brands. That includes higher income shoppers who are also increasingly turning up in Walmart's grocery aisles or at Wendy's instead of maybe some pricier restaurant. Dollar Tree CEO specifically called out shoppers earning over $80,000 a year as trading down and coming to dollar stores. Of course, the dollar stores, every store has been raising prices, too. That must be having an impact, isn't it? With groceries and food, I just want to say that doesn't seem to be the case yet. People seem to be still paying higher prices for food. Wendy's executives, for example, said they haven't seen any visible pushback to their price increases. What about beyond food and groceries? Yes, very much so, because shoppers are kind of having to decide whether to pay that 20 bucks on eggs and milk or to buy a, I don't know, random shirt they don't really need, not necessity. One big outlier on this is beauty. People apparently are splurging on makeup, skincare, perfumes. And so, for example, Target and Kohl's said sales at the beauty counter are helping offset losses maybe in other departments. But overall, clothing, home improvement stores, other stores that don't sell essentials are feeling the pain to various degrees. Best Buy, for one, gave one of the most dire forecasts for the year, predicting it will be the worst year yet for sales of consumer electronics. NPR retail correspondent Alina Seljuk, thanks so much. Thank you.
We've all sent a text or email that we regret, but what if there was an artificial intelligence tool that could let you know you're about to start a flame war before that can happen? You can hear that conversation tomorrow with Aisha on Weekend Edition Sunday. Listen live to your public radio station or your radio or on your phone or at npr.org. listening to Weekend Edition from NPR News. We're waking up to a mix of rain and snow. Good morning. Thanks for spending some of your morning with 90.9 WBUR. I'm John Carpilio. WBUR meteorologist Danielle Noyes joins me now on this winter storm that's moving through. Good morning, Danielle. Good morning, John. So this is the system that caused a blizzard and brought record cold to Southern California. What's it doing to us? So yes, this was a a big headline maker across the country yesterday, actually. I don't know if you saw Kentucky had their top outages over a half a million with some wind that blew through. So this storm has a history. Here, I think it's a lower impact event. You know, we're used to blizzards and big time snowstorms here in New England. The highest totals have been north and west of the city where we anticipated them. I've seen some three, four, even five and six inch amounts, Route 2 quarter, right along the Mass New Hampshire border into Southern New Hampshire. Closer to the city, even the 128 belt It's been a couple of inches so far. For Boston, uh, you know, at Logan Airport, right along the coast, it's been a little bit less. But I do expect to flip back over to snow for many of us this afternoon. Generally speaking, uh, what are the conditions uh, further out throughout the area to the south and the north? You said it. There's a little bit of everything, everything but the kitchen sink this morning. There's sleet, there's rain. I'd say generally inside of 128 and even 495, we've been mixing with some sleet and rain at times. And the snow intensity where it is coming down has even been lighter. Down through the South Shore and Cape, still some areas of rain, some pockets of fog out there. But there's still some snow through the interior, especially outside of 495 into southern New Hampshire, reducing visibility. And it's kind of that sticky snow that's clinging to everything. Still some slippery travel as well. And the wind, Danielle, when will it start to wind down? doesn't really wind down until early this evening. We've got wind advisories and high wind warnings that are up for the coastline through 6 p.m., especially from Cape Ann to Cape Cod. We've already seen some gusts to 50 miles per hour. We may see some gusts to 60 this afternoon, which would cause some pockets of outages and damage. The remainder of eastern Massachusetts, it's some gusts 40 to 50, so a little bit lighter. Inland, I'm not concerned about any damage. So it all will wind down this evening and the wind will subside substantially late this evening and overnight tonight. How about the rest of the weekend and into the week ahead? Tomorrow, actually, we jump into the 40s after starting in the 20s. So I do think even where we did have rain and not much snow, if it's untreated, it will get a little bit slick and icy tonight because we drop into the 20s region-wide. We do melt away tomorrow, though. Highs 45 to 50. We're going to be up near 50, actually, again on Monday. But it's March in New England, so the roller coaster ride and temperatures continue. And Tuesday, we'll probably be back into the 30s with another kind of weak system coming in on Tuesday. We'll just have to hang on. Thank you, Danielle. Exactly. Thanks, John. (laughs) That's WBUR meteorologist Danielle Noyes. And in Boston right now, it's raining and 36 degrees. 
We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Xfinity Internet, announcing Xfinity 10G Network, so everyone at home can be online, even peak hours. Xfinity from Comcast. The future starts now. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good morning. Just ahead, more of Weekend Edition Saturday. When he was arrested at 17 for having three bags of weed in his pocket, Devin Alexander's future was put on hold. But times have changed. People just talked down on me and said I'd never do anything in my life. And now I win awards. People call me a bright young entrepreneur. Alexander still has weed in his car, and he's selling it in his Massachusetts hometown, except now it's legal and backed by a government program. His story on the next All Things Considered from NPR News. Today at 5 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR News Station. Support for NPR comes from this station and from the NPR Wine Club, featuring wines from around the world, with NPR-inspired bottles like Weekend Edition Cabernet, available to adults 21 or older. More at nprwineclub.org radio. And from the George Lucas Educational Foundation, creator of Edutopia, for 30 years committed to advancing educational innovations and research that improves pre-K to 12 learning. More at edutopia.org. This is NPR. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon. Prime Minister of Britain, Rishi Sunak, was born in Southampton to Hindu parents of Indian Punjabi descent who were born in Southeast Africa and immigrated to Britain. A lot of history, Indian, British, African, empire, is packed into that one sentence. Author and journalist Satnam Sangera believes that Britain and the rest of the world should learn more of it. His new book, Empire Land, has been acclaimed in Britain and just published in the United States. Satnam Sangera joins us now from London. Thank you so much for being with us. Hello, Scott. You've got an opening chapter added for and um, and addressing U.S. readers, which says, if, if I might paraphrase, just because you guys rebelled against the British Empire in 1776 doesn't mean the story doesn't apply to you. Uh, how so? Yeah, I mean, America likes to think of itself as anti-colonial, but America itself is a creation of the British Empire. You know, the 13 colonies were a distinct phase of British colonialism. The Puritans who ended up on your side of the Atlantic, you know, they were escaping religious persecution, but they were British. And, you know, the enslaved who ended up in America did so largely through the transatlantic slave trade, which the British Empire dominated. Uh, Britain's racist imperialism also inspired America's own racist imperialism. You know, in 1899, you had Theodore Roosevelt talking about how the colonization of India had done great things for the English character. If we do as well in the Philippines and the West Indies, it'd be good for us too. So I think to understand American history, you really do have to understand British Empire as well. A good portion of the book is phrased as a personal journey. Uh, you're from a Sikh family, grew up in Wolverhampton. And I wrote down your words, having faced up 
to how Britain has shaped and defined my life in deep ways I had never realized, I can't help but wonder how imperialism may have shaped modern Britain itself. What have you observed? British Empire explains so much about Britain. It explains not just our multiculturalism. The reason I'm in India talking to you now is because some white people invaded India several centuries ago. Similar ex explains Rishi Sunak as well, but it also explains our particular brand of racism, explains a lot of our politics, things like Brexit, uh, explains our language, explains our success in the world wars, explains our businesses, and yet we don't really teach it. And I think the world has a better sense of British empire than the British people themselves. Mm. You... Um... You trace through the several stages of imperialism from the from the plantations in Caribbean and, and North America uh, to the British takeover of the East India Company. And then finally, Britain, of course, abolished its trade in slavery in the 1800s. But you caution your countrymen, don't be too proud of that. Yeah, I mean, I think the legacy of the racism is something British people are not are particularly aware of. I mean, the racist violence was was imported straight into Britain in the 1950s and 60s and 70s. Brown people were beaten up almost for a sport. Um, mm. Came straight from empire. And equally, the discrimination in jobs, but in pubs, you know, there were certain pubs when I was growing up that you just didn't go into mm. if you were brown. And the wild racial stereotypes, you know, the idea that, you know, Sikhs were good fighters, West Indians were good workers, or, you know, Equally, black people were lazy. All these racial generalizations came from empire. I, I say this to someone who uh, admires your book, and I was a reporter in India. Uh, India still unofficially has a caste system. Empires are not unique to Britain. Many existed across what we now uh, know as modern-day Africa, South America, and the Middle East. Their empires were not nearly as large as the European powers, but are you holding... British history to a higher measure? I don't think so. I think British Empire matters in particular because it was the biggest empire in human history. You know, it covered a quarter of the planet. And I think it also matters because I think the level of denial in Britain is really quite profound. And I think there's very little awareness in public culture about what British Empire involved. I think that's why it needs particular attention. You note many times in the book, though, that there, there was always a lot of opposition to imperialism within Britain, from prominent Britons, Prime Minister Gladstone, Orwell. Queen um, Victoria, sometimes, yeah. Yeah. You know, there's an idea in, in at the moment that, you know, in Britain that you mustn't criticize British history because doing so is, is unpatriotic. But you're right. There's a proud tradition of opposing empire right from the beginning, you know, people like Gladstone, Queen Victoria objecting to the excesses of the British army in China. Opposing empire was just a proud in a, a British imperial legacy as all the other things that these people are proud of, like the railways and, uh, you know, defying the caste system and so on. Yeah. What does it say of Britain today that the prime minister, Rishi Sunak, Conservative Party and a Hindu, uh, the mayor of London, Sadiq Khan, Liberal Party, and a Muslim. Racism is certainly real, but does it suggest Britain has a capacity for something better too? Yeah, absolutely. I think things have improved a huge amount in our lifetime. And it's undeniably a great thing that Rishi Sunak is prime minister, a brown person. I never thought it would happen. But at the same time, you know, his political party are, have embarked on this culture war 
arguing that, you know, woke people like me should be silenced. And so it feels like brown people can make it to the very top in Britain. But once they get there, they have to act like nothing needs to change. Unfortunately, almost all the brown people at the top of British politics all have the same views about race, which is just not natural. And I've talked to people in the Conservative Party, brown people who say that, you know, they feel like they can't bring their full selves to their careers. And that means that we've still got a lot of work to do when it comes to race and our history of imperialism. Satnam Sanghera, his book, Empire Land, How Imperialism Has Shaped Modern Britain. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you, Scott. They told me that I vanished. They told me that I had it. Macklemore is back five years after his last album and more determined than ever. They can't take my talent. They can't take my stripes. They can't erase my hours. I'm from the underground, anything above ground is a mountain. I'm done trying to impress anybody, but the heavens where I'm headed, you don't get to hold on to your flowers. I am in my zone. Macklemore, of course, became famed in 2013 with his catchy lyrics and unique take on hip-hop. He has since become one of the most successful contemporary musicians in the world. Nearly 13 billion streams, four Grammys. This week's third solo album comes out. It's called Ben. Macklemore joins us now from New York City. Thanks so much for being with us. Thanks for having me, Scott. I appreciate it. Ben is your first name, your full name, Benjamin Haggerty. Yes. Why title the album Ben? What What are you uh, declaring here? Well, for one, Scott, I'm horrible at naming albums, so I just went with my name. <laughs> but if I'm really answering it and looking for some actual meaning here, each album is a process of self-discovery. So Ben is a return to my origin story, which is making art for the sake of art, making music because I love the creation of it, not because of the music business, but because of music itself. Standing in line, as we wait outside, the rush, the high, the dance floor's open, waiting for us to collide. Let's ask you about some of the songs. One of the first... 1984. Even to this day, 1984, a lot of people think of Orwell. You know, I've read 1984 um, multiple times to about the halfway point, and then I uh, pick it back up about seven years later, and I've continued to do that. But the idea of the past has always been one that's interesting to me. And what was happening in New York, what was happening in the underground scene, what was happening in, in dance culture, what shifted culture to who we are today. That electronic London vibe has been something that I've always been inspired by. A lot of stylistic variety on this album. 80s pop, old school hip hop, modern trap. How how do you balance and work with different genres? I am someone that has never stuck to one sound. And and parts of that have led people to be confused about like, well, what is this? What do I do with this? What box do I put this in? And um, I make music for the people that get it. I make music for myself. Let's listen a little bit to the song Heroes. Back in the days of the boulevard on Broadway before the downtown. 
rolling around with a 40 ounce of malt drink. Posted up in front of the 7 Eleven all day. My heroes didn't look like yours. My heroes didn't look like yours. Tell us about the, the people you're singing about here. I was brought up by the rap music that I was listening to as a kid. Those were my teachers. I think that if you listen to um, The Message by Melly Mel, you're like, damn, that sounds like 1982 in New York. Or Nas talking about New York State of Mind. That's a record that paints the picture of what it was like on the park bench in Queensbridge. People that really took you on that journey, those were my heroes. They still are my heroes. I've got to ask you, I know it's come up before, you, you talk about the importance of authenticity in your work. There, there are some people that, that find a white hip-hop artist to be inauthentic. I think that if I was to ever let someone else's perception of me and my authenticity dictate how I felt about myself, then that would probably be a pretty clear indicator that I wasn't being authentic. If I'm letting that sway what I'm doing in the studio, then I am not living up to my highest self. Did you have a tough pandemic? I, I assume that you're referring to the relapse. Yeah. Yeah, that, um, the disease of addiction was resurrected. And part of my disease is just wanting to turn my head off, turn the world off, just escape. And the pandemic kind of did that. You know, it was like, oh, well, now you don't have a job. Now you don't need to go tour. Now, you know, your kids aren't even in school. You can escape. This is your chance. And that voice kept getting louder and louder the longer that I was away from my 12-step meetings that I go to in person multiple times a week. Zoom wasn't doing it for me the same way anymore. And when that happens, it's only a matter of time until that voice gets loud enough in my head that I decide to listen to it. Feel like I'm running out of time, the sun will shine forever, forever. For addicts in particular, I think routine is so important in terms of just waking up and knowing what to do. And I really lacked that at the beginning of COVID. What, um, what brought you out of that tailspin? My wife, she always knows. She was just like, yo, what's going on? You're not being honest with me. And, um, and it was painful. It, it's still difficult to talk about. More importantly, it reminded me, and you're clean, and you get some days under your belt, life starts to have the same hues when those colors come back, when the words come back, when that connection to the heart comes back. You're reminded that life is worth living and that whatever you're doing to try to escape isn't working and it never has worked. The only way to show up is to face yourself, to face what you are trying to hide from and to show up. I need you right now, Mac, to wake up more than ever. Ain't no more weed, alcohol, and popping pills, etc. I know these days get rough, but they get better. It's a cold world. Let's go to the Gucci store for a sweater. Feel it deeply in my heart. You need this letter. So I pour my feelings out to you before I go and mail it. I don't know what I'm sensing, but I can smell it. When you write me back, just tell it. I'm going to soak it up and hell it. I'm just going to guess it's not too difficult to get you to talk about your family. No. <laughs> uh, you recently had your third child, I guess, a son. Yeah, right? son, yep. Your daughter, Sloan, I gather, is seven, and... Um, I have something that's going to be challenging for you. 
I'm gonna dye your hair. No, 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 no. Get out of your comfort zone. No one's touching this. You don't know if you're even gonna have hair for much longer. What? Be the change that you want to see in the world. Not having it. Your best critic? Look. I the most honest critic. Settled. There is no restraint of tongue with that child. She tells it how it is. And outside of brushing her teeth and maybe faking some sick days, Sloane's pretty honest. Well, that's what you want, although it's painful sometimes for a parent, isn't it? Completely. Let me ask about your last song on the album, Tail Lights. The light, it was always on glow. And when I was lost, I was on the right road. Tail lights ahead as I drive slow. It's the right turn, then I'll find my way home. I see a fog in the road. I don't know what path I'm taking. What's um, the fork in the road you see? It's right. It's wrong, self-will versus God's will, control versus letting go and realizing that we're powerless. Of course, we have those big moments in life where we know this is a big decision. Do I want to push into fulfillment and meaning, or do I want to push into um, comfort and ease? There's really only one way. Do the work, show up, and keep pushing forward because this is where life feels fulfilling like it has real purpose and intentionality behind it and when i get in that place then the universe starts to make sense In a lot of sense, his new uh, his new album is Ben. Thank you so much for being with us, Scott. You're the best, man. I fell in love with their moonwalk, dancing in the kitchen in their two socks. I should have saw the signs, but refused, dog. How am I supposed to ever move on? Why is it so complicated? You said that you didn't love me, said you working on yourself. You ain't been to therapy since 2020. Something isn't right. See it in your eyes. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Indeed, a hiring platform for helping businesses attract, screen, and interview candidates to fill job openings, all from their employer dashboard. More at Indeed.com NPR. And from Made in Cookware. Made in Cookware is crafted by chefs for use in restaurants and home kitchens around the world. Their cookware can be found at madeincookware.com. And from listeners like you who donate to this NPR station. This is 90.9 WBUR and WBUR.org. Good morning. I'm John Carpilio. Thanks for being with us. A wintry mix this morning in the Boston area, snow this afternoon, little or no additional accumulation, and windy conditions, especially right along the coast. Right now, 37. WBUR supporters include Merrimack College, offering online and on-campus master's in education programs and licensures for teachers. Learn more at online.merrimack.edu. And the Gardner Museum. There is so much to unpack in the art and global travel albums of Betty Saar and Isabella Stewart Gardner. Gardnermuseum.org. 
I'm Josh Gondelman, filling in for Peter Sagal. Last time on Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, actress Rosie Perez felt the pressure of our quiz. I listen to this show every single weekend, and I'm always calling out the right answer. But now that I'm in the thick of it, I have no freaking idea. These are ridiculous. <laughs> we'll see how I do in the hot seat on this week's news quiz from NPR. Today at 10 a.m. and 2 p.m. on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. I'm here now host Robin Young, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, 89.1 WBUH-Booster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. From NPR News in Washington, D.C., this is Weekend Edition. I'm Scott Time, and this hour, CPAC meets with many big names missing while Congressional Democrats hold a retreat. Tennessee's governor signs a new law to restrict drag performances. Many in the state worry. Cadence Miller, sophomore at Texas Tech University, says... It was trans, like, drag performers who were, like, pioneers in us getting any type of queer rights at all, like, statewide and nationwide. And later, an extraordinary story about how one man's hate was turned into love. Malala joins us, the Nobel laureate, to talk about the Oscar-nominated Stranger at the Gate. First, our newscast. It's Saturday, March 4, 2023. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Giles Snyder. With fighting reported to be intensifying in and around the eastern Ukrainian city of Bakhmut, the White House has announced a new $400 million aid package. Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre. This package includes more ammunition for U.S.-provided HIMARS and howitzers that Ukraine is using so effectively to defend itself, as well as ammunition for Bradley infantry fighting vehicles, armored vehicle launch bridges, and demolition munitions and equipment. Jean-Pierre spoke during a White House briefing as President Biden met with German Chancellor Olaf Scholz in the Oval Office. The administration is again pledging to support Ukraine for as long as it takes. The Conservative Political Action Conference, known as CPAC, wraps up this evening. And after three days of events, former President Trump is set to be the closing act, as NPR's Elena Moore reports. CPAC has traditionally been a key stop for Republicans thinking about a run for president. And tonight, Trump makes his speech a highly anticipated event for many at the conference. It comes just one day after attendees heard from Nikki Haley, the former governor of South Carolina, who's also thrown her hat in the ring. But missing from the CPAC lineup this year are a handful of other Republicans weighing possible presidential runs, including Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, former Vice President Mike Pence, and South Carolina Senator Tim Scott. Instead, all three are attending a different event hosted by the conservative organization Club for Growth, which notably did not invite Trump. Elena Moore, NPR News, Washington. Much of the eastern United States under some kind of weather advisory today. NPR's Dave Mistich reports that the lingering system has spent the past week wreaking havoc across a large portion of the country, causing power outages and claiming at least nine lives in the south. More than a million people across a dozen states are without power after strong winds blew through the south, across the Midwest, and to the east. Affected areas in the south stretch from Alabama to North Carolina. 
Indiana, Kentucky, Ohio, West Virginia, and Pennsylvania also saw gusts that knocked out power. The National Weather Service confirmed a tornado touchdown in southern Ohio. The heavy winds and rain are the remnants of a powerful storm that slammed the West Coast last weekend. Forecasters say the weather system is now headed for the Northeast, threatening to dump heavy snow. Western New York is under a winter weather advisory through Saturday morning. Upstate New York could see as much as a foot of snow by the afternoon. Dave Mistich, NPR News. Heavy snow is returning to the West Coast. National Weather Service has several feet possible in the higher elevations of the Sierra Nevada and the Cascades. In Southern California's San Bernardino Mountains, some residents have been stranded for days, and the San Bernardino County Sheriff is warning they could be stuck for another week. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good morning. I'm John Carpilio in Boston. Well, the winter storm is dumping a wintry mix on us. WBUR meteorologist Danielle Noyes says there's a little bit of everything out there right now. There's rain, there's sleet, there's snow still through the interior. You know, much of eastern Massachusetts, particularly from 128 to the coast and then back down to the south shore and Cape has been mainly rain. We've made that changeover. Uh, But there's still some areas of snow and reduced visibility north and west of the city and through central Massachusetts, southern New Hampshire, with some slick roads and kind of that pasty, sticky snow, which is clinging to everything out there. Noise says the snow will end around 5 o'clock this afternoon, but snow showers will linger on the Cape. Winds are expected to gust 40 to 50 miles per hour in the eastern part of the state before diminishing tonight. The Massachusetts Emergency Management Agency is reporting 5,400 power outages scattered around the state. High winds are forcing the Steamship Authority to cancel early ferry service between Cape Cod and the islands. The airline and airport site FlightAware reports 20% of the flights at Logan are canceled. The MBTA is not reporting any storm-related delays, and commuter rail passengers are being reminded to be careful on the platforms and walkways because of icing. Well, ski areas are welcoming the snow. Kevin Bell is vice president of marketing at Loon Mountain in Lincoln, New Hampshire. When New England has snow in their backyard, it's, it's hard not to think about skiing. So you know, we're, again, always appreciative when we, when we get that natural snow. Cold temps and natural snow are the, are the ideal combination for us. Bell says Loon picked up more than two feet of snow recently, so more snow today is a bonus. In other news, a federal appeals court has dismissed a lawsuit filed by gangster Whitey Bulger's family who blamed prison officials for his death. The court ruled yesterday that the U.S. Bureau of Prisons employees can't be held liable for the transfer that led to his death. Bulger was bludgeoned to death hours after he was transferred to a West Virginia prison in 2018. Right now it's 37 degrees in Boston. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Carla Itzkovich, whose gift in memory of Moises Itzkovich, founder of the Moises Itzkovich Foundation, helps provide public radio news and information to communities around the world. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon. Thanks for joining us. It's CPAC time, the Conservative Political Action Conference. And this year's headliner, former President Donald Trump, is sent to close out the show tonight. NPR senior political editor and correspondent Domenico Montanaro joins us. Domenico, thanks so much for being with us. Hey there, Scott. Thank you for having me. Uh, CPAC is often, uh, let me put it this way, a chorus line uh, for Republican candidates where, you know, they audition 
before politically active young conservatives who might want to work in their political campaigns. Um, has that been the case this year, though? That's a really good way to put it, because it generally is something of a chorus line of Republicans who are kind of coming in, trying to play to the sort of thousands of conservatives, usually young activists who get together there. Part of the conservative movement, really a weather vane for the conservative movement, is what CPAC winds up being. But this time around, really not many of those potential presidential candidates showed up. We did hear from a couple of them. Uh, Nikki Haley was one. She's the former South Carolina governor who worked as UN ambassador in the Trump administration. Here's what, some of what she had to say. She really tried to appeal to the right wing of the party. Wokeness is a virus more dangerous than any pandemic hands down. I have traveled the world and back, and I've seen what's out there. America isn't perfect, but the principles at the heart of America are perfect. And take it from me, the first minority female governor in history, America is not a racist country. You know, and there's a lot in that, obviously. And you can tell there she's kind of trying to walk this line. You know, she's throwing red meat to the base, hoping to win them over. But Donald Trump really has a real stronghold on a lot of that base. She really needs to win over white-collar Republicans, who are the ones who are mostly saying that they want an alternative to Trump. Mike Pompeo, former Secretary of State, also spoke. He has been going through all the expected motions of someone who's considering becoming a candidate. Did he try to distance himself at all from Donald Trump? Yeah, and I was really listening to see what kind of line he was going to draw because it hasn't been clear how he was going to distinguish himself. Um, but he did try to make something of an electability argument. And let's take a listen to that. We lost three elections in a row and the popular vote in seven of the last eight. There are many reasons for this, but one of them is I think they've lost trust in the conservative ideas. And this is the task that's in front of us. And I am convinced we can do it because we're right. You know, Pompeo really took what was kind of an oblique shot at Trump, but uh, kind of veiled, really. You know, he uh, talked about himself having been a Sunday school teacher and that the country needs that kind of character. But his speech wasn't exactly a barn burner. Neither was Nikki Haley's, really. And they spoke both in front of kind of half-empty audiences and really got just lukewarm receptions at best. Domenico, you've covered CPAC uh, for almost two decades and I wonder what this year's confab tells you about the state of the conservative movement in America right now. Yeah, you know, it's really fractured. You know, CPAC is usually, uh, you know, an event that tells you where the movement is headed. And it seems more like it's still something more like TPAC, a Trump political action conference, because it really just highlighted that. Even Haley was sort of sandwiched between two Trumps. You know, Donald Trump Jr. went before her. <laughs> Lara Trump, former President Trump's daughter-in-law, went afterward. So, you know, the, the bigger news here this weekend almost was that the people who didn't show up, we're talking about Ron DeSantis, the Florida governor, Tim Scott, the South Carolina senator, and Trump's former vice president, Mike Pence, who all opted to go to a donor retreat in Florida hosted by the Club for Growth, which is an anti-tax group that's been involved in Republican politics for a long time. And they're saying that they want to really support somebody other than Trump. And these candidates really need the kind of money that comes along with that. But because Trump has such a stronghold on the party infrastructure uh, in a potentially crowded field, he still looks like the man to beat. NPR's Domenico Montanaro, thanks so much for being with us. You're so welcome. Thank you. And Democratic members of the House of Representatives held their own conference this week in Baltimore. They gathered to try to strategize on how to campaign for the 2024 elections and decided to lean heavily on their legislative record. They say 
That will give them an edge to flip the handful of seats needed to regain control of the House next fall. NPR congressional reporter Barbara Sprunt was there and has this report. The last time Democrats gathered for their annual retreat, splits were on display as centrists and progressives were at odds about President Biden's policies and strategy. But this time, according to Congresswoman Ann Custer, Those battles are behind us. We have come out the other side. Custer chairs a moderate coalition of House Democrats. But even progressives, who weren't always on board with President Biden's agenda, have come around. Here's Congresswoman Pramila Jayapal, who chairs the Progressive Caucus. I think he's been the most progressive president that we've had in a long time. Biden recognized this newfound unity within the caucus during a speech he made to members on opening night. It's been one of the most successful United caucuses we have ever seen. And you all stick together, thank God. The reality of divided government means it's unlikely Democrats will pass any major legislation and in some ways forces unity in attacking GOP priorities ahead of an election year. Biden told members to win next year, they need to focus on their record from the past two years. And folks, you all know how much we've gotten done, but a lot of the country still doesn't know it. That's why the big job in front of us is implementing the laws we passed so people start to see it in their lives, all the benefits that are there because you produced it for them. Lawmakers here agree the party's focus should be on kitchen table issues. Biden told members they should be talking to their constituents about new laws that invest in infrastructure, health care, and increased U.S. manufacturing, all of which Democrats hope will boost the economy, create new jobs, and appeal to working-class voters. We just have a buffet of accomplishments to offer, and he just rolled them out in such a, a way that it can really resonate with the everyday person. That's Ohio Congresswoman Chantel Brown. She shares Biden's campaign vision, which includes having cabinet members and other White House officials fan out across the country to highlight how new laws affect communities. And so this gives the people back home confidence that we're delivering on the promises that I made during the campaign and actually putting them in a place where they can see the administration coming into the community and doing actual work. Biden told lawmakers he'll be there for them if they ask. You tell us what you need to help us understand the impact that it's having on all of your district and your, your, your folks, you know, and, and we're, we're going to get it done. Although Biden hasn't officially announced his re-election bid, it's widely expected he'll seek another term, tying his political fate together with those of House Democrats. That means what members ask of the administration will likely vary district to district, depending on the president's popularity. Here's Custer again. It may not be having the cabinet or the president in your district every other week. It may be a lower level official that's coming and talking about, let's have a meeting with your town officials to talk about how to apply for rural broadband funding. In other words, running on the Biden agenda doesn't necessarily mean campaigning alongside the president. Barbara Spren, NPR News, Baltimore. Analysts say that Chicago Mayor Lori Lightfoot lost a re-election bid this week largely because of voters' fear of crime. That fear is not just in Chicago. I think crime is, depending on where you live, it can be like the number one issue that you think about um, or like a secondary issue. Today in All Things Considered, how to reduce crime in big cities. Listen to All Things Considered this afternoon on your radio, your member station's website, or at npr.org. Thank you.
Tom Sizemore has died. The actor had been in critical condition for several days following a brain aneurysm. Zenpier's Neta Ulibi reports he died in Burbank, California. Tom Sizemore was 61 years old. For a while, Tom Sizemore seemed to be everywhere. He was a supporting actor in some of the biggest movies of the 1990s, backing up Robert De Niro as a hardened criminal in the heist movie Heat. You know, for me, the action is the juice. Or working against Denzel Washington in the film noir Devil in a Blue Dress from 1995. Pretty easy. Sizemore played a hard-boiled detective in a role first offered to Harvey Keitel. Yes, Mr. Carter tells me he wants to buy our gold. Most famously, Tom Sizemore was second in command in the World War II movie Saving Private Ryan. He supports Tom Hanks in the search for a lost comrade even when other soldiers rebel. Fall in! You gonna shoot me over, Ryan? No, I'm gonna shoot you because I don't like you. Sir, Sizemore was bitten by the acting bug as a kid in Detroit. He grew up watching movies with his mother and studied theater at Wayne State and Temple University. He tried being a stand-up comedian in New York, but his belligerence and charisma were better suited to the screen. No, this is punk. Never a leading man, Sizemore stood out in small roles. There's two keys, uncut. In Point Break, one of two early movies he appeared in, directed by Catherine Bigelow, he played an unhinged undercover agent. You think I like this hair, man? Oh, you think I like these clothes? My wife wants me to stay at Romana. Sizemore should have been a major star, but his career was derailed by addiction. Personal dramas soon eclipsed the on-screen ones. Multiple arrests and jail time, including for domestic violence against his then-girlfriend, Heidi Fleiss, known as the Hollywood Madam. The two later appeared together on the show Celebrity Rehab with Dr. Drew. How old were you start, first started doing drugs? Fifteen. And uh, history with heroin? Smoking it. I clean in 96, and you know, I didn't pick up the heroin again until a month ago. His periods of sobriety, Sizemore said, were the happiest of his life. Even during the worst of his addictions, he kept working. And he said he was staying clean in the years before his death. Tom Sizemore seemed to be building a bridge back to Hollywood respectability, appearing in guest roles on popular TV shows such as Lucifer, Law & Order SVU, and Cobra Kai. Neto Ulibi, NPR News. And you're listening to NPR News. Good morning, and thanks for spending part of your morning with 90.9 WBUR. I'm John Carpilio. Coming up in the next 30 minutes, the Oscar-nominated short documentary, Stranger at the Gate. But first, WBUR meteorologist Danielle Noyes has details on the wintry forecast. It's a slow go out there. Areas of rain, wintry mix, and snow inland will continue. The rain snow line moves east through midday to early afternoon, which means Boston flips back to snow. Little additional accumulation is expected, perhaps according to an inch in spots, as much as a few inches in northern Massachusetts and southern New Hampshire. It all winds down 5 to 7 p.m. west to east. The wind will be a big story today, gusting 40 to 50 miles per hour at the coast and southeastern Massachusetts. Some gusts to 60 on Cape Ann and Cape Cod will result in pockets of damage. The wind Wind eases tonight, skies clear out, temperatures drop into the 20s, sun and clouds, highs in the 40s tomorrow. And Danielle will join us in 15 minutes with more on the forecast. Right now, 36 degrees in Boston with rain. I'm Scott Simon. Are you thinking about trading in your car? Why not donate it? 
to this station instead. We'll turn it into the programs you love. Just go to WBUR.org. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Bernadine Sung Megason and Tim O'Sullivan with Compass New England, helping clients navigate the evolving Massachusetts real estate market. More at homesbybernadine.com. And Fairbank and Perry Goldsmiths in Concord, helping transform your outdated, unused jewelry into fresh and wearable pieces for everyday life. Fairbankandperry.com. I'm Giles Snyder with these headlines. That storm system that left at least nine people dead in the south and hundreds of thousands of power outages across several states is now moving over the northeast. The storm is expected to dump heavy snow, sleet, and rain in the region through this afternoon. Residents of mountain communities in Southern California have been stranded for days because of that record-breaking snowfall, and now the sheriff in San Bernardino County is warning they could be stuck for another week. And Texas Republican Congressman Tony Gonzalez is facing censure by the state GOP. A vote is expected today at a meeting in Austin. Gonzalez has broken with conservatives on key issues, including new gun safety laws following the Uvalde school shooting in his district. I'm Giles Snyder, NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Staples, with supplies to get business done no matter where it gets done, from ink and toner cartridges to technology like webcams and networking accessories. More at Staples Stores or staplesconnect.com. And from the Rockefeller Foundation, making opportunity universal and sustainable for over 100 years. And from the William T. Grant Foundation at wtgrantfoundation.org. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon. Russia's invasion of Ukraine has Moldova worried that they could be next. A small country next to Ukraine has no NATO protection and only candidate status in the European Union. It has also struggled with a pro-Russian separatist movement for decades, and to this day Russian troops are stationed in a breakaway region called Transnistria. We are joined now by Alexandru Flenka. He's former Deputy Prime Minister for Reintegration and currently represents Moldova in the peacekeeping effort between that government, Russia, and Transnistria. Thanks so much for being with us, Mr. Flenka. Good morning, and I'm glad to be here. Why are Moldovans concerned with the war in Ukraine next door, that they might get caught up in it? Of all Ukraine's neighbors, Moldova is closest to the battlefields. Russian cruise missiles overfly uh, Moldovan uh, airspace, Russian missile debris have fallen on Moldovan territory several times. So we have already encountered a number of significant security incidents. But one should not disregard the um, economic impact of this war on Moldova. Investments are not coming for obvious reasons, because the war is next door. Moldovan business people move their businesses to neighboring Romania, which provides them... uh, greater security because Romania is EU and NATO member state. You oversee the Moldovan government's peacekeeping efforts between the three sides. What has that been like? What have people been saying? What have you had to do? 
my routine activity is basically attending the weekly meetings of the so-called Joint Control Commission, which has three components, uh, Moldovan delegation, Russian delegation, and Transnistrian. What I found, to be honest, is lots of absurd, and the greatest absurd is that this uh, so-called peacekeeping mission exists at all. Picture this, there's peacekeeper checkpoints along the division line, and these uh, uh, peacekeepers checkpoints are trilateral, which means that armed Moldovan, Transnistrian, and Russian military do their service 24-7 together for 30 years. Do we need those peacekeepers at all? I'm pretty certain we don't. Why is any of this necessary? Because it is just a legal cover for Russia to maintain its military presence on Moldova's soil. All of Moldova's governments uh, in the past 20 years have demanded that this mission be dismantled and replaced with an international civilian force under a relevant international mandate. Russia has always opposed that because, again, that gives them the pretext to maintain their military on Moldova's uh, soil. Moldova's president has accused Russia of a plot to overthrow her. Have you observed that? I am inclined to see that statement by President Sandu as part of the uh, misinformation warfare that Russia wages against Ukraine, but also Moldova and many other European countries. In response, Moldova has to wage misinformation war as well. I um, have not seen any indication that Russia would be planning or would even be able to implement a coup d'etat in Moldova right now. And Russia, to be honest, does not have to rush to do it now. There will be local, uh, nationwide local elections in Moldova in the fall, and then there will be presidential elections in Moldova in 2024, followed by parliamentary elections in 2025. Lots of opportunities for Russia to interfere and seek to ensure a victory to pro Russian parties in Moldova. All they have to do is wait, allow their agents to work, and continue putting energy and uh, political pressure on Moldova. When you say allow their agents to work, I mean, is that suggesting some plan to essentially commandeer the elections? No, uh, the Moldovan authorities have full control of the electoral process, but any election campaign means lots of campaigning, lots of information and misinformation, lots of room for manipulation. And Moldova uh, has never been among the richest nations in Europe. In fact, we're a poor country, and poverty is best allied to misinformation and political manipulation. Alexandru Flenka, who leads the peacekeeping effort between the Moldovan government, Russia, and Transnistria, thank you so much for being with us, sir. Thank you for the invitation. Tennessee has become the first state to restrict drag shows. This week, Governor Bill Lee signed a bill to ban drag shows in public spaces. Under the new law, such performances won't be allowed anywhere a minor might see them. Mariana Vacayo of member station WPLN in Nashville reports. Her name is Lucid Dream. 
When the music starts, a drag queen in a white jumpsuit and a long white wig steps out onto the stage at Tennessee Tech University. Her makeup is the neon pink approximation of a fawn. It's Lucid Dream's first time doing drag, and she's not the only one. Tonight's event is called Drag 101, where first-time drag performers are sharing the stage with veterans. Backstage, Lucid Dreams recovers from a runway mishap with the help of other performers. Well, I didn't move, and then I tripped down a <laughs> stair, so that was You're initiated! Yay! Initiation! I, I it happens. It happens. Like I said, your best move is to laugh it off. The crowd here at Tennessee Tech is filled with laughs and shrieks of delight. But moments of joy for the Tennessee drag scene are becoming rarer. Since the fall, Republican lawmakers have taken action to restrict drag shows. At the Tennessee Tech event, sophomore Cadence Miller says his generation of queer people owe a lot to drag queens who were present at Stonewall, and that it's no accident they're under threat now. It was like trans like drag performers who were like pioneers in us getting any type of queer rights at all like statewide and nationwide. The ban as written could also have a chilling effect on pride festivals. While new laws typically go into effect on July 1st, the bill was quietly amended to take effect April 1st, ahead of Pride Month in June. To draw attention to the issue, Knoxville Pride threatened to cancel its festival if the ban passed. But now Pride director John Camp says Pride will go on, even if it's a march instead of a parade. We can't have a celebration and leave some of our community out. So we have to figure out how to continue to have a celebration because we are a proud people and we, we have a lot to celebrate. Camp says the first Pride was a form of protest. And so the march is a way for Knoxville's LGBTQ community to rally together to honor their roots. Proponents of the law say drag shows are harmful to minors. Tennessee Republican State Senator Kerry Roberts voted for the bill. He says the intent is to prevent kids from seeing obscene performances. In the state of Tennessee, we don't think it's appropriate for grown men to perform in front of children simulated sex acts. That's what this is about. Nashville business owner David Taylor testified before the state legislature that the drag shows at his club are not sexually explicit. We know this because we have a Tennessee liquor license and are bound by Tennessee liquor laws. In our more than 20 years in business, we've not received a citation for one of our drag performers. Taylor says the ban on drag will negatively affect Nashville's economy. Drag brunches and similar performances are a big tourist draw. My businesses alone have contributed more than $13 million to the state in form of sales and liquor taxes since we opened, and we're just one of many such businesses in our state. The language of the bill has also drawn concern from the larger LGBTQ community. Drag performers are defined as male or female impersonators. The ACLU of Tennessee's Henry Seaton says that language could lead to criminalizing trans people or anyone who doesn't conform to gender norms. That can easily be a trans person. You know, there's the phenomenon of walking while trans, where specifically like trans women of color, while just existing, oftentimes get the police called on them just for like being trans. The ACLU of Tennessee says it will challenge the law if it's used to punish a drag performer or shut down a family-friendly LGBTQ event. For NPR News, I'm Mariana Vakayao in Nashville. And now it's time for sports.
new baseball rules speed things up. Kevin Durant debuts for Phoenix and the Boston Bruins set a record. A good one, Howard Bryant of Better Lark Media. Another good one joins us. Good morning, Howard. Good morning, Scott, from one of your favorite places, the Tucson Festival of Books. The Tucson Festival of Books. You were on the big board last night at the author dinner. Was I really? You were. And did people throw dinner rolls at my uh, at my image? It's it's a great it's a great place. I'm so glad you're there. Listen, um, few games into baseball spring training season. What do the new rules look like to you? What's caught your eye? Is it is it baseball season, Scott, or is it speed dating? <laughs> we have been hearing for forever that baseball is taking too long, that the games are interminably long, that the hour, the average game is now three hours and four, three hours and six minutes, something like that. And so baseball has decided to go radical. We have a clock in baseball. The game that has no time limit now has a pitch clock. Either, you know, get in the batter's box and swing, or it's a strike, or or throw the ball or it's a ball. And so the, the games have been cut down by almost 20 minutes in spring so far. And it is weird, I got to tell you. But it also is sort of necessary. I think one of the interesting things about sports, about baseball, is that work expands the time allotted. If you have five hours to do 20 minutes worth of work, it's going to take five hours, right? Yeah. That's our nature of procrastination. The games have just gotten longer and longer and longer. And baseball has decided that in an age of, of uh, screen swipers that enough is enough. And so now they are enforcing this rule. This is the biggest rule. Obviously, we yeah. have the other rules as well, Scott. We've got the, the no more shifting, so you can't put a... a defender out in the outfield anymore all the infielders must be on the dirt we have that we have the bigger bases which we talked about a few weeks ago right. to try to encourage try to base encourage. as big as aircraft carriers now. <laughs> exactly yeah. uh to try to encourage more stolen bases but what we're really seeing is hey let's get on with it no more futzing around with your you know with your batting gloves and no more listening to your walk-up music and the rest of that it's time for baseball and and let's get on with it we'll see how it works but so far it's a little jarring to see everybody <laughs> rushing into the box and swinging to get out of there uh nba Kyrie irving went to dallas kevin durant to phoenix how are they doing with their new teams and vice versa well, the Mavericks have been struggling until the other night when both Kyrie and Luka Doncic both hit for 40. And Kevin Durant is suddenly, wherever Kevin Durant goes, he's going to be on a championship-level team because he's one of the greatest players of all time. And now he is in Phoenix, and suddenly the balance of power has shifted. And so it is going to be, once again, everybody is good. You saw the Boston Celtics last night blow a 28-point lead to Boy. Durant's former team and, and Kyrie's former team, the Nets. Everybody is good. Nobody is great. But my goodness, if you look in the Western Conference now, you've got Phoenix, you've got Dallas, you've got Memphis, you've got Denver, and even the Lakers and the world champion Warriors are still in there. So uh, everybody, it's going to be stacked this postseason. Yeah. Boston Bruins are smoking the hockey ice, <laughs> if you please, aren't they? They are unbelievable, winning every game. And and you have to enjoy this. I, I'm Obviously, we look in the postseason and we say, okay, well, what's going to happen? Who knows? But what you're watching right now is is stunning. They, they're they winning every single game. They yeah. Now, obviously, there are more points on the board now than there were back in the 1970s when the Montreal Canadiens were dominating. But when you, we haven't seen this level of domination in almost 50 years. Incredible hockey up in Boston. Yeah, well... I must say, it's fun to watch. Whatever, um, whatever you you know, whatever you think about the game, the Bruins have just been terrific fun to watch. Uh, they, uh, you know, they're artists on ice. It's really. And great. we will, and we'll see in the postseason 
if it translates into Stanley Cup success. Haven't won it since 2011. Yeah. Howard Brandt of Meadowlark Media, thanks so much. Talk to you soon. Thank you, Scott. And you're listening to Weekend Edition from NPR News. We're waking up to a mix of rain and snow. Good morning. Thanks for spending some of your morning with 90.9 WBUR. I'm John Carpilio. WBUR meteorologist Danielle Noyes joins me now on this winter storm that's moving through. Good morning, Danielle. Good morning, John. So this is the system that caused a blizzard and brought record cold to Southern California. What's it doing to us? So yes, this was a a big headline maker across the country yesterday, actually. I don't know if you saw Kentucky had their top outages over a half a million with some wind that blew through. So this storm has a history. Here, I think it's a lower impact event. You know, we're used to blizzards and big time snowstorms here in New England. The highest totals have been north and west of the city where we anticipated them. I've seen some three, four, even five and six inch amounts, route two quarter, right along the Mass New Hampshire border into southern New Hampshire. Closer to the city, even the 128 belt, it's been a couple of inches so far. For Boston, uh, you know, at Logan Airport, right along the coast, it's been a little bit less. But I do expect to flip back over to snow for many of us this afternoon. Uh, generally speaking, uh, what are the conditions uh, further out throughout the area to the south and the north? You said it. There's a little bit of everything, everything but the kitchen sink this morning. There's sleet, there's rain. I'd say generally inside of 128 and even 495, we've been mixing with some sleet and rain at times. And the snow intensity where it is coming down has even been lighter. Down through the South Shore and Cape, still some areas of rain, some pockets of fog out there. But there's still some snow through the interior, especially outside of 495 into southern New Hampshire, reducing visibility. And it's kind of that sticky snow that's clinging to everything. Still some slippery travel as well. And the wind, Danielle, when will it start to wind down? doesn't really wind down until early this evening. We've got wind advisories and high wind warnings that are up for the coastline through 6 p.m., especially from Cape Ann to Cape Cod. We've already seen some gusts to 50 miles per hour. We may see some gusts to 60 this afternoon, which would cause some pockets of outages and damage. The remainder of eastern Massachusetts, it's some gusts 40 to 50, so a little bit lighter. Inland, I'm not concerned about any damage. So it all will wind down this evening, and the wind will subside substantially late this evening and overnight tonight. How about the rest of the weekend and into the week ahead? Tomorrow, actually, we jump into the 40s after starting in the 20s. So I do think even where we did have rain and not much snow, if it's untreated, it will get a little bit slick and icy tonight because we drop into the 20s region-wide. We do melt away tomorrow, though. Highs 45 to 50. We're going to be up near 50, actually, again on Monday. But it's March in New England, so the roller coaster ride and temperatures continue. And Tuesday, we'll probably be back into the 30s with another kind of weak system coming in on Tuesday. We'll just have to hang on. Thank you, Danielle. Exactly. Thanks, John. (laughs) That's WBUR meteorologist Danielle Noyes. We have rain in the Boston area. The MBTA is not reporting any storm-related delays. Commuter rail passengers are reminded to be careful on the platforms and walkways because of icing. The airline and airport site FlightAware reports 20% of flights at Logan are canceled. 
High winds are forcing the Steamship Authority to cancel early ferry service between Cape Cod and the islands. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Babson College. Now's the time for entrepreneurial leaders, and Babson educates them to navigate today's world. Ranked number one for entrepreneurship by U.S. News & World Report, a Babson MBA helps you stand out as a professional who takes action. Apply by March 16th to start this fall. Babson.edu slash MBA. And Xfinity Internet, announcing Xfinity 10G Network, so everyone at home can be online, even peak hours. Xfinity from Comcast. The future starts now. Coming up on Weekend Edition Saturday, a University of Pennsylvania ephthalmologist discovers, live on Zoom, that an insect was not nearly as ordinary as he thought it was. In sports, the Celtics blew a big lead last night and lost to Brooklyn by a score of 115-105. to 105. Celtics star Al Horford hit a career milestone last night, his 1,000th game. He's just the 145th player to reach the 1,000-game mark and the 12th active player to do so. 36-year-old Horford is still a starter. He's one of four Celtics, averaging more than 30 minutes per game. That's quite a feat. I'm Josh Gondelman, filling in for Peter Sagal. Last time on Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, actress Rosie Perez felt the pressure of our quiz. I listen to this show every single weekend, and I'm always calling out the right answer. But now that I'm in the thick of it, I have no freaking idea. These are ridiculous. (laughs) We'll see how I do in the hot seat on this week's news quiz from NPR. Today at 10 a.m. and 2 p.m. on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Support for NPR comes from this station and from LifeLock by Norton, working to help consumers protect themselves against tax identity theft. Learn more at lifelock.com NPR. And from the Joyce Foundation, committed to advancing racial equity and economic mobility for the next generation in the Great Lakes region. Learn more at joycefdn.org. And from the Public Welfare Foundation, committed to advancing transformative youth and criminal justice reforms. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon. So often in this world, we define ourselves and others by our differences. We do this even when we lose sight of who we are. One time I had a discussion with a higher ranking person about coping. Looked me straight in the eye. Says, Mac, you're on the range, you're shooting at a paper target. As long as you can look at them as anything but human, you won't have any problems. I said, oh, okay, that makes sense, yeah, yeah. And that's what I did. That's former U.S. Marine Richard McKinney. He returned from fighting overseas to Muncie, Indiana, where he saw Muslims in his own community and thought of people that he had been trained to see as the enemy. It was more than he could take, and he began to make lethal plans. But this extraordinary story is told in a short documentary, Stranger at the Gate. It has been nominated for an Academy Award. We are joined now by the director, Joshua Seftel. Josh, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you, Scott. And one of the producers of the film, the Nobel Peace Prize laureate and female education activist, Malala Yousafzai. Thank you for being with us. Thank you. Thank you so much. Josh, how did... uh, 
Rich McKinney's story come to your attention? Well, at the time, we were creating a series of short films about American Muslims. And we came across this story in a newspaper article, and we just couldn't believe it. You know, it was a story of a, a guy who wanted to um, commit mass murder. And when he went and came face to face with his would-be victims, they changed his mind through kindness, through love, through grace. And I felt like it was a story that we, we need to hear right now. Yeah. Malala, you, uh, you know what it's like to be targeted by hate. You almost died in a Taliban attack for posing restrictions on female education in your native country, Pakistan. Did you see something in this story that particularly spoke powerfully to you? The story ends so beautifully by showing us how hatred is defeated by love and kindness. Of course, I was also attacked uh, by a person and he was a Muslim. And I, you know, we came from the same community, but I was labeled as, as an outsider to him. And Joshua Septel, let, let me get you to talk about how you present the story. Because, of course, when we first meet Richard McKinney, he's talking about how he felt tightly wound. Every time he saw a, a Muslim in Muncie, he, he wanted to flinch inside. He felt his family was in danger. And he begins to make dire plans, doesn't he? Well, yes, he, he began to build a bomb because he wanted to commit mass murder. And... He uh, was talking with his eight-year-old daughter one day, and he expressed his hate toward Muslims. And his eight-year-old daughter looked at him askance and said, like, what are you talking about? Like, what's wrong with you? And I think he kind of looked in the mirror in that moment. And what he did was he actually went to the mosque right after that. He was going to try to find proof to justify his act of bombing this place. And that's what brought him face to face with the congregants of the mosque. Yeah. And they met him with kindness. And after that, he started coming back almost every day. Malala, I'm just wondering, as you watch the story of Richard McKinney and the wonderful Bahrami family, this is a family of Afghan refugees or prominent members of this mosque. I wonder, what do you think they discovered about each other? Bibi um, has been this kind, welcoming person for her whole life. Bibi Barami is one of the founders of the mosque. And she talks about the people that she has come across um, in, in her life for many, many years. Uh, they were really grateful that they were welcomed in the U.S. in the difficult times. And it was the local community in the U.S. that opened their hearts and their doors to them and, and gave them uh, a chance to, to have a better life. And they want to now give that love to others and they passed it on to Mac, and now Mac has taken this journey where he wants to pass it on to other people who might be going through tough and challenging times. This film is coming out and is nominated for an Oscar at a time when we keep hearing, and I wouldn't dispute it, that the divisions in our world have never been greater. Do you think that this story can somehow make a difference to people? It is not just about a non-Muslim guy and a Muslim family. When you look deeply into it, I think it is about every community. There are ethnic differences as well. There are lingual differences as well. And unfortunately, 
wherever you are in the world, you do come across this hatred among groups because part of them is, is different than others. Sean mm. Seftel, this is not just another film, is it? it? It is more than a film. The biggest moment so far has been when we showed the film to the members of the mosque, the people whose story we told. And when it was over, one guy in the back of the room stood up and he said, I believe every American needs to see this film. We feel that that's our obligation now. Malala, forgive me for asking, um, are you going to the Oscars? Yes, I will be at the Oscars. And uh, I am thinking about what I'm going to wear. So <laughs> that is taking a lot of my time. Malala Yousafzai, uh, one of the producers, and Joshua Seftel, the director of the documentary Stranger at the Gate, nominated for an Academy Award. Thank you both very much for being with us. Thank you. Thank you. It all began with a trip to Walmart in Arkansas, led to a discovery not seen in half a century. I found this weird bug in this weird place and everybody should know about it. Michael Scavarla was going to pick up a couple of items when he spotted bug on a wall outside the store. It was big, it looked uncommon, so Michael did what any self-respecting entomologist, a scientist who studies insects, might do. He picked up the bug for his private collection. Thought nothing of it for years, but during the pandemic lockdown, Michael, by now an assistant research professor at Penn State University, was teaching a class and took the insect from his cabinet. Now, he was sure it was an antlion a dragonfly-like predator. I had just taught the students, like, these are the characters you use to identify antlions. They have clubbed antennae, they have lots of cross veins in the wings, and I pulled this specimen out and I show it to them. It was immediately apparent to me and everybody watching that, oh shoot, this is different and weird in a good way. And this kind of dawning realization, like, oh, this is important. Turned out that the large insect was in fact a giant lacewing dating back to the Jurassic era. The bug had once been common on the east coast of America, but it disappeared by the 1950s. The specimen found by Michael was the first recorded on the east coast in more than half a century, the first ever in Arkansas. Michael believes the Ozark Mountains are key to his discovery. The Ozarks in general are very biodiverse but they're under-surveyed compared to other diverse areas like the Southern Appalachians. So if you were to pick areas in the country where these things could go undetected for 50 years, the Ozarks would be high on your list. Michael says he's still picking up unusual insects wherever he spots them, and it's not just outside of Walmart. He jokes that he'd love to find a new mite species in the bushes outside a major brewery. Would he call it bud? Pineapple Street, the novel, not the actual street in Brooklyn Heights, is a comedy of manners set among people who live in storied limestone homes, have prenups, set out tablescapes, summer between the Clintons and the Obamas, do good, sometimes conspicuously so, send their children to fancy schools, have their family names on libraries, try to keep up and keep current, and be something to someone. At last can be the hardest of all. Pineapple Street is the debut novel 
from Jenny Jackson, Vice President and Executive Editor at Alfred Aikenop. She joins us now from New York. Thanks so much for being with us. Thank you for having me. And that was such a wonderful introduction. Well, I, I loved the novel. Tell us about the three main characters, because the novel follows the lives of what I'll refer to as the three Stocktons. Sure. So the novel is the story of three women in the Stockton family. Darley is the oldest sister, and Darley is a mother of two young children, and she's given up her career in finance to take care of her kids and is grappling with what that means for her. And then second, we have Georgiana, who is the baby of the Stockton family, and Georgiana is just this delightful brat. Georgiana is spoiled but doesn't realize she's spoiled. She works at a not-for-profit and she thinks that this means that she's really doing good in the world, but she's pretty much flailing. And then last we have Sasha, and Sasha is the in-law. Sasha has married their brother, Cord. Sasha is a, an artist from Rhode Island who finds herself living in this massive limestone on pineapple where nobody really wants her. How do they strike a balance between uh, what we would now call privilege these days and doing something good in the world? Well, I think at the beginning of the book, none of them are at all striking a balance. They are oblivious to much of their privilege, or in some ways they feel burdened by their privilege, which is actually even worse. Over the course of the novel, Georgiana has a moral reckoning, and she begins to think about what her money might be able to do in the world, um, her understanding of what money can do, i.e. give it away, give to foundations, become a philanthropist, is in some ways a little simple and shallow, but it's a great first step towards becoming good. Let me ask you about uh, a party scene and, and to read from it. Georgiana is invited uh, to a Russian dance hall in Brighton Beach. Group gets together on a bus. She sits next to, I think it was a grade school acquaintance named Curtis, uh, who says you know, notices all the people in the room from Brooklyn Heights or perhaps the Upper East Side, and they're dressed uh, in, in costumes, ridiculing uh, Russian immigrants, he thinks. Can I get you to read some of their dialogue? We'll note it begins with a profanity. We will uh, put a costume on that. you, Curtis. You don't know me. Of course I know you. You're a rich real estate brat living off your trust fund, only dimly aware that an entire world exists outside the coddled 1%. <laughs> oh, so you live in Zuccotti Park? You went to the School of Hard Knocks? Didn't you go to Princeton? Oh, so you don't live off a trust fund? I work for a not-for-profit providing healthcare for developing countries, Georgiana said icily. And who pays your rent? I own. And your rich parents bought that apartment? My grandparents left me money, not that it's your business. And how did they make that money? Well, some of it they inherited, so your family got rich off being rich. You are an ass. I probably am, but at least I'm self-aware enough to know it. Have fun ridiculing people who didn't come over on the Mayflower. Ooh, that's tough stuff. How do you make people care about either of them? <laughs> um, well, I think at first they might be a love to hate, but then as the novel goes on, I'm hoping they're a love to love. Yeah. Let me ask you a question that I, I think I would have posed to Truman Capote if I ever had the chance. How's that for a preface? I love it. <laughs> Are you concerned that some of your neighbors might read this novel and say either, why the hell did you put that in there? Or why in the hell didn't you put me in there? Oh, 
absolutely. I mean, I can definitely hear all of my neighbors sighing and saying, there goes the neighborhood. Because to be honest, one of the things I've done with Brooklyn Heights in this book is I have exaggerated it. I've turned up the volume on the place. And the reality is, is that every Tuesday when I go grocery shopping at Gristiti's, where I use my mother's senior citizen discount to save money, the grocery store is full of normal people. But reading this book, it would make you think that it was entirely socialites and celebrities. On the other hand, I don't think any of my neighbors can be too mad at me because worst case scenario, I just raise their property values. <laughs> I don't want to slide past this. You use your mother's discount card? I do. I mean, she was living with us when we got it, and so it's just tied to my key fob. My mother is gone now, and I still use her state of Illinois uh, voter's registration, but that's different somehow, okay? That's different, but what I really want is I really want my mom's Costco card. Well, just rifle through her things. (laughs) Um, I want to get back to your characters, because at some point, the easy jokes seem to recede, and we begin to see them as full human beings who are maybe occasionally clueless, but there's something human beating in their hearts. Yes, absolutely. I think they all have preconceived notions of one another, especially the way that the two sisters by blood, Georgiana and Darley, regard Sasha. Mm -hmm. But as the novel goes on, they start to wear each other down. They start to open up to one another. Sometimes that backfires, but as they get to know each other, they, in each other's eyes, become less caricatures and and more real people. Yeah. I I must say I find a lot of contemporary novels, and I say this with respect, polemical. I appreciate the fact that yours is not. Well, I think we all are good and we're all bad and we're all trying to do our best and sometimes we're selfish and these characters are no exception. Jenny Jackson, her novel, Pineapple Street. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you for having me. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon. Support for NPR comes from this station and from HBO Max. The HBO original drama series Perry Mason, starring Matthew Reese, returns for a new season, Monday at 9 p.m. on HBO Max. And from Imaginable Futures, supporting the Institute for Women's Policy Research, working to close inequality gaps for women and improve the economic well-being of families, iwpr.org. And from listeners like you who donate to this NPR station. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good morning. I'm John Carpilio. Well, a wintry mix continues out there in the greater Boston area with some snow due in this afternoon. Little or no additional accumulation, though, and windy with winds gusting to 40 and even higher along the coast. 37 degrees now in Boston. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Dana-Farber Brigham Cancer Center. 
where everyone on your team specializes in your type of cancer. Learn more at DanaFarberBrigham.org. And New Arts Center in Newton, a community arts education space for all ages and all levels of ability. Register for summer camp and more at NewArtsCenter.org. When he was arrested at 17 for having three bags of weed in his pocket, Devin Alexander's future was put on hold. But times have changed. People just talked down on me and said I'd never do anything in my life. And now I win awards. People call me a bright young entrepreneur. Alexander still has weed in his car, and he's selling it in his Massachusetts hometown, except now it's legal and backed by a government program. His story on the next All Things Considered from NPR News. Today at 5 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR News Station. I'm here and now host Scott Tong, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.